Welcome to the BT Focus podcast dedicated to the behavior technician experience and the delivery of ABA services. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the BT Focus podcast. I'm Brian Kaminsky and today I'm joined by Centria Regional Clinical Director Ian McGarvey. Ian, how are you? Brian, another day. Let's do this. Another day, man. Let's do it. Let's let's talk about principles of behavior. I'm I'm pumped. Um, so today, Ian, we are going to talk about our February BT team meeting clinical topic of the month, and it's a good one. We're going to be talking about positive reinforcement, and so positive reinforcement you could you could argue maybe at the most important principle of behavior um, within ABA. Right. Um, this is going to be a, a principle that is incorporated in just about every dimension of our behavior treatment plans within our skill based um, acquisition acquisition programs and um, just a really important topic that we want to unpack and dig a little bit deeper. All right. So we are going to discuss top 10 things that you should know about positive reinforcement. You ready? Let's do it. All right. So to begin, I'm going to start off with a really technical definition and then we're going to unpack it. All right. So positive reinforcement. What are we talking about here? Ian, could you define for us what is positive reinforcement? Sure. So there are three main components to the definition of positive reinforcement. So just kind of all putting it together, it's any stimulus that occurs after a response or a behavior that increases the likelihood that that response or behavior will occur again in the future. So let's break that down by its three parts. So first thing, any stimulus. Reinforcement, a reinforcer can be anything. There's no limit to what a reinforcer can be, whether it's edibles, tangibles, something you know socially mediated, whether it's praise, anything can act as a reinforcer. And I know we're going to talk about function-based reinforcement here in a little bit, which will play into that. So anything. It must occur following a behavior. So it cannot occur before. It must occur following. Um, And then finally, it must increase the likelihood that that response occurs again in the future. So for something to function as a reinforcer, it must increase a behavior later on down the road. Awesome. And and great definition, Ian. One thing that I just want to highlight to begin, because we're going to go into other behavior change change tactics in future episodes. Um, And we'll talk about positive reinforcement versus negative reinforcement, positive punishment versus negative punishment. The first thing I want to highlight is what does the word positive mean? Because there can be like a subjective kind of uh, association with, oh, positive is good, right? Or negative is bad. Positive is good. Really for this definition, positive, what's positive referring to, Ian? Yeah, it's it's a good thing to bring up, Brian. Um, I think early on as behavior technicians, we all had the the time period where we just couldn't get over treating that word positive as like good, you know, um, but that word positive, literally, you should think of the addition sign plus we're yep. adding something. Um, so, you know, I, I do love the flow of how positive reinforcement sounds, but sometimes I have that debate in my mind about whether or not we should change the name to something like, you know, additive reinforcement uh, yeah. or something that was a little more, you know, really, really kind of went with what we're trying to get at versus positive, which kind of makes us think, oh, it's a good thing. Um, 
Not that positive reinforcement isn't a good thing because it is <laughs> it's a great thing. But yeah, w- with the definition, don't get yourself mixed up. And this comes into play maybe a little bit later on when we talk about some of the other principles. Positive in this context is just talking about something was added and then the reinforcement behavior increased. That's it. Boom. Right. Awesome. All right. And so now I thought we'd have a little bit of fun. Um, I want to talk about what are some things that you personally find reinforcing? And this will segue into our, our, our next topics moving on. Oh, gosh. Brian, you just love to put me on the spot, man. <laughs> um, well, okay. Oh, let, me, okay. let me offer up a couple of mine. I'll give you a couple, couple let's, minutes. Yeah, let's, let's hear right? Brian's. All right. So what are some things that I find reinforcing? Number one, sleeping in on a Saturday. I've got three little kids. Man, nothing is better and more reinforcing for me than sleeping in on a Saturday, which might be like 8 a.m., but that's still creeping <laughs> in. And man, I'm going to take it, right? Every every ounce of that uh, that REM sleep, every minute, I'm going to take it. Uh, number two, um, let me paint a picture for you. Friday, it's been a long week. It's, you know, 7.30, kids are in bed. I'd say some great takeout, nice glass of wine, uh, a good show, and... Um, yeah, just some 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 quality time with the family, right? Uh, another good show. Did you did you watch This Is Us, Ian? It's one of I, our shows. I do not. It's a good one. You have to be like emotionally rested for it. <laughs> it's how I describe. It. It's a roller coaster. You just go along for the ride. But man, that is a good show. Um, let's think of one more. Um, this is pretty elusive, but I would say any Detroit sports victory doesn't matter. It could be the Lions, Pistons, Red Wings, Tigers. All four seem to be rebuilding at the same time, which like that's our luck, but that's that's the straw we've we've pulled. But uh, I think in those three, that's a good start. Um, all right, so I'm going to pitch it back at you, Ian. What are some things that you find reinforcing? You know, first thing I just have to say, I don't want to get too much into you know Detroit sports, but is it like the Lions are always rebuilding? Is that a thing? Oh, man. oh, oh yeah. dagger to the heart, man. Well, <laughs> you know, only the last like seven decades, but we'll sure, sure, sure. Okay, well, kind of on that thread, you know, I'm I'm just immediately thinking of what are the things that I've been deprived of since we've been in the COVID pandemic. So first thing is sporting events. So for me, it's specifically, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, Indianapolis Colts. Big Indianapolis Colts fan. Didn't get to go to any Colts games this year. Um, so that'd be, that'd be numero uno. We'll, we'll throw that one in there. Um, next one, <clears throat> live music in the summer oh, pat, on a patio, drinking a nice dark IPA, um, country music playing that, that, that there's number two oh, or lawn seats. Lawn seats are uh, oh, a beautiful thing, man. Concerts yeah. and lawn. Yep. Uh, yep. yep. Nice. Right there. Okay. I'm with you. Um, number three, um, my parents live in Florida, so any any time I can be down there sitting by their pool, getting some rays, mm. that'd be number three. Number three. Good stuff, man. All right. You, you're making me want to plan my next vacation. So uh, we'll stay on track there, and we'll, we'll move to our second topic and how this ties in. All right. So number two, reinforcers fall under two categories, unlearned and learned, or what we could say conditioned or unconditioned. So a couple of the examples we just provided. Things like sleep, food, water, we could describe those as unlearned reinforcers, meaning there's no there's no conditioning or, or no teaching necessary to have that established as reinforcers, right? We all need to eat. We all need to sleep. Um, pretty foundational, right? The second category, learned reinforcers or conditioned reinforcers, there's some sort of teaching that needs to occur for that um, 
stimulus or that event to acquire some reinforcing properties, right? So, so some examples of how it relates to therapy, like praise, for example, like verbal praise would be what we would likely categorize as a learned reinforcer, where it has to be established over time through that that conditioning or that pairing process in order for it to have that that reinforcing effect. All right. So number three. Anything you want to add to that, Ian? Yeah, sure. A couple things. Um, so first thing you you mentioned when you were talking about learned, excuse me, unlearned reinforcers as being things that people need. Um, so your things that you mentioned, you know, water, food, uh, warmth, shelter. So one thing I would point out to behavior technicians is across the board, when in doubt, learned reinforcers are not going to have quite as much value as those unlearned reinforcers. And the reason I bring that up is because Oftentimes, when someone hasn't had enough level of an unlearned reinforcer, it's going to affect how those learned reinforcers work. So, for example, we've probably all been in a session where um, our client was really tired or really hungry. Um, In those moments, that client's probably a lot less likely to comply with what we are asking them to do which in turn also typically means that they're not motivated for, <clears throat> excuse me, the learned reinforcers that we are trying to present, whether it's tangible, social praise, et cetera. So, so making sure that those unlearned reinforcers are taken care of um, during your sessions is, is really going to help you uh, be more successful in therapy. That's awesome. And to, to build off that, Ian, you know, Oftentimes in the the beginning stages of the therapy process, we we lean far more heavily on those unlearned reinforcers, right? Those 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 tangibles, those those food items. But over time, the the goal is that you know learned reinforces such as verbal praise. Um, start to have that reinforcing effect so that we can shift those reinforcers um, more to things that are more naturally occurring in the environment. So um, very good. All right, number three reinforcers are individualized. All right. So what do I mean by that? So what you'll notice, I I think Ian, you and I are are very like in many ways, um, all of the reinforcers that you listed are checking the box for me too, right? Who wouldn't want to go to Florida? Who wouldn't want to go to a concert with a nice IPA and, uh, you know, go to a nice sporting event? At least for me, though, those are, are ringing true as being reinforcers. But um, how it's relevant to therapy for our behavior technicians is we can't assume that what you found to be reinforcing for one client to necessarily be the case for another, right? So some common examples, right? Um, when, you know, we were really big on having a lot of good social praise and, and those social reinforcers um, following responding, some kids are not going to find tickles or high fives or hugs to be reinforcing, right? It might be the opposite, right? Um, and so it's really important that when we're delivering reinforcement or delivering that consequence, that we're really checking in. Like, is is this having the desired effect on our clients? So you can't assume that, hey, just because I like love chocolate, that you know somebody else is going to have that that same um, you know that same preference. Um, what do you have to say about that, Ian? Yeah. And uh, in my experience, the high five is really one that I see oftentimes um, that that pops up. And 
uh, you know, it's pretty, it, it, it's hard not to do it, but when a client finishes their, their set of trials, the first thing you just want to do is provide social reinforcement, you know, especially if you're really hyped up with them as well. Yeah. And it's just really hard not to be like, yeah, high five or fist bump. And it's like, well, that technically could be viewed by the client as a demand. Um, so it is important to know whether or not that client does find those things reinforcing. And I know that we're going to touch on how do we decide or how do we determine if a client finds something reinforcing? So perfect. Perfect. Yeah. Perfect segue to number four, Ian. So, uh, reinforcers are function based. What do we mean by that? Um, what we mean by that is we can only define something as a reinforcer if, it, it increases a future rate of that behavior in the future, right? So we have what a certain consequence looks like at face value, but we really can't make that determination if it was a reinforcer until we see what that behavior looks like in the future. So for example, there could be consequences for some people that we might think would be reinforcing, but really it could have the opposite effect. So for example, like you know, I'm thinking, uh, you know, back to my, you know, adolescent years, if somebody were to like pay me a compliment, I was, you know, shy, you know, going up, growing up and it's like, oh man, I don't really want to hear like my aunt saying how cute I look. Like, right. So like that compliment, you look so nice in your, you know, in your suit, whatever. Um, like, oh, that's just like, I don't want to wear this ever again. Like I, I don't want that attention right now. So that attention did not function as a reinforcer. Right. Vice versa, there could be a consequence where, um, you know, maybe you're you're in a setting where, you know, a uh, parent is sending a child to a timeout. Hey, like, quit misbehaving, like, go to your room. And that could be, like, the most reinforcing thing possible for that kid. Like, sweet, I'm going to my room. I can get out of this thing that I didn't want to do. Um, and so what, you know, the parent might have thought as being, like, a more of a punishing effect actually had a reinforcing effect. So reinforcement is function-based. What are your thoughts on that, Ian? Yeah. So I remember when I was first starting out getting my supervision to become a BCBA, you know, we were talking about, you know, more in-depth concepts of reinforcement like we're doing today. And um, I remember uh, my BCBA at the time gave me permission to pick one of the client's reinforcers and pick a specific response. And, and so the goal was to see if that preferred item would actually increase the frequency of a certain response. Um, as an opportunity for just to see how the power of reinforcement actually works. Um, so, you know, you technicians out there, um, you know, I would absolutely advocate that if you want to uh, go to your BCBA and just ask for a small period of time, if you can pick one of the child's preferred items and make it specifically the reinforcer for only one target that you're working on and, and see if that target increases. And if it does, you know that that item functions as a reinforcer. Mm, very good. That's a good tip. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, moving ahead here. And, and I, I think he, this is also another perfect segue. Um, I want to get a little bit into some terminology here. Preferences versus reinforcers, right? Because I think these terms really get used pretty much interchangeably and they're very similar. However, there are some subtle differences. Okay. So preferences are something that, you know, an an event, an object, an activity, um, anything that that individual finds to be favorable, right? In other words, something that you like, right? I have a whole boatload of things that I I really, really like. Reinforcers are items that when they're delivered, 
increase the rate of responding in, in the future as a result of that, right? So in other words, all reinforcers, you could say, are preferences, but not all preferences always function as reinforcers, right? So, you know, in, in, a, in therapy, as a behavior technician, you might notice like, oh, man, like this this toy was like really, really reinforcing uh, yesterday, but like, it's not like really quite doing it today. What's up with that? Um, and so we'll, we'll talk about in a second here, like what are some things that can alter the value of a reinforcer from time to time? But I did just want to make that subtle point out because I, I think that it's something that um, often gets used interchangeably in our field, but I did want to point out there are some, some differences involved there. Yeah. One point you made there that I want to, I want to jump into a little bit more. Um, so reinforcers, um, you know, the preference versus, excuse me, a preference versus a reinforcer. There are also what we call generalized conditioned reinforcers. And so, for example, when you're implementing discrete trial training with your client, oftentimes you're going to use a reinforcer such as, you know, edibles or a toy. Well, those typically fall into the category that we call a generalized conditioned reinforcer. And what that means is it doesn't really matter what the task is. This item is likely going to function as a reinforcer for whatever it is. But there's also reinforcers that are specific to the activity being completed. And so kind of going back to we, you know, the function-based conversation, um, sometimes a generalized conditioned reinforcer will not work as a reinforcer for some things. Um, so what may be a reinforcer for a specific activity for one child, for a child may not also be a reinforcer for another activity, depending on maybe how difficult the task is. So for example, um, you know, if someone, um, told me to clean my bedroom for, uh, a six pack of adult beverages, right. That would probably be a, a good reinforcer for me. Right. But if someone said, Hey, go run a mini marathon for a six pack of adult beverages, that would not function as a reinforcer for, for what's being asked of me. Um, so situational for sure. So it's water. And and then that six pack of adult beverages. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of water. Yes. Yes. Precisely. Really, really good point there, Ian. Good, good call out there for sure. Um, moving on to, uh, item number six, the value for reinforcers will change over time. Okay. And, and there are specific events that can occur in the environment that will either increase the effectiveness or the, of a reinforcer or decrease the effectiveness of a reinforcer. Okay. If we want to get really, if we want to get like really precise here, throw in some fun ABA terminology, um, a establishing operation is some sort of event in the environment that increases the effectiveness of a reinforcer. For example, going back to your point, running a marathon is going to be a great establishing operation to increase the value of water, right? Um, let me think of the, the, the reverse of that, something that will decrease the value of water. Well, drinking a lot of water uh, is going to decrease the value of water after, you know, seven or eight glasses in. That would be what we call an abolishing operation, something in the environment which decreases the value of a reinforcer over time. And it's this kind of dynamic effect of reinforcement is something really important to keep in mind during therapy, because what might be reinforcing in the first hour of your session may not, in fact, be what's going to be the most reinforcing at, at hour two and hour three. And we're going to talk a lot about preference assessments um, in future episodes. 
but you, you, it's important to, to keep a pulse on how your, your client is, is responding to that reinforcement delivery. And hey, if it seems like we're kind of losing some steam here, maybe not as motivated or jazzed up, that's where we want to, to, to switch out or, or vary that reinforcement delivery so that we can have a, a really engaged session, right? Because motivation drives learning and reinforcers are really the fuel for that motivation. Yeah, and two key words in in you know talking about the values of a reinforcer are deprivation and satiation. Um, so the scenario I always like to use um, is is the Golden Corral buffet, which okay <laughs> I haven't been to a Golden Corral buffet since I was a kid. But so you know Sunday morning brunch you haven't eaten since the day before you're probably pretty hungry right so not eating food for a period of time would be considered your event that creates, you know, the establishing operation. Um, so deprivation of food. So deprivation of a reinforcer will increase its value, right? So you haven't eaten for a long time. Food is going to increase in value, right? The sight of any food. Um, you get to the golden craw buffet. What do you do at a buffet? You stuff your face, right? You, you eat until you can't eat anymore. And then you still eat a little bit more. So at that point, you get what Brian called the abolishing operation where you become satiated on a reinforcer where, you know, for example, everyone in the world probably has their favorite food in the entire world. And there's probably a point where you'd even refuse eating that food because you've eaten too much, right? That'd be an example of when you just become satiated, right? And that reinforcer just has lost its value. It's not appealing right now, but in a few hours after you've, you've digested your food, the value of that's going to go back up. So, um, the value of a reinforcer does vary depending on those two things, deprivation and satiation. Awesome. And in you speaking about those points, Ian really brought up what I think is a great practical tip for our behavior technicians as it relates to satiation and deprivation. Um, you probably can think of that like one, like golden reinforcer that is like the, the hot item, the, the favorite toy activity that's in your therapy bag. Right. Um, I think it's important to be mindful of, you know, when and how are we using that reinforcer, right? Because if it's something that's used repeatedly and over and over and over again, it's going to lose its value over time, right? The child's going to become satiated on it and it's not going to have the same, same bang for your buck, if you will, if it's used repeatedly over and over again. So a practical tip might be if there is like that one, you know, challenging program that is just requires a ton of effort on the part of your learner that, you know, it just is, is really something that has been, you know, time consuming and a bit challenging, save that reinforcer for that activity, right? Um, so that the learner will be motivated. And so that, um, you know, it's a, it's a more reinforcing environment. So I think you're going to find that over time, it's going to make that, that process a lot easier for you, but most importantly for your, your learner as well. And, and not to segue into next month's topic, but, uh, don't want to, don't, don't want to ruin the surprise, but, it's, <laughs> it, it, and that brings up an important piece of always making sure you've got more than just one or two things that the child finds reinforcing easier said than done at times. And sure. we all know that, but having, um, a handful or more of, 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 as you said, reinforcers in your, in your therapy bag, um, Having multiple things available will help so that when that child does maybe begin to experience some satiation with one thing, um, that you've got some things lined up that they might then be ready for next. Totally. Totally. 
I, I see it with uh, our two year olds at home. My my boy girl twins. Um, they have we have our you know fun closet with all of their all of their toys and you know dolls and trucks, lots of trucks actually, uh, <laughs> all these different things. And we've noticed we have a lot of just clear tubs and clear bins that will rotate out, and we'll we'll notice like after about a couple days, like. And they're not like super pumped about those toys. And we literally will pull out a toy that they've had, we've had for, for months. And it's just, it's novel, it's new. And it's a, it's truly amazing to see how much more engaged they'll be with those toys that, you know, they, they played with a couple of days ago. They just haven't seen them for a while. And now they're this new, exciting, shiny toy. So it, it's fun to see that illustrated in, in, you know, my life as well. So um, very good. Okay. So, Here's another very practical consideration for reinforcement. Number seven, what are some ways that we can make reinforcement more effective? Okay, so some practical tips for your sessions itself. Okay, so number one, and I think this to me is a, is a, is a key one, um, immediacy. Okay, so the more immediate or in the moment that you can provide that reinforcement upon whatever behavior we're reinforcing, the more effective it's going to be. Some people might call it, I've heard like the 30 second rule, like in order for that reinforcer to be effective, it needs to be delivered within 30 seconds of that target behavior. I would challenge you to, to do it as close to immediately after that target behavior as possible, right? Um, because uh, as a great Behavior analyst Pat Fryman made this point, you know, human beings, we learn by two primary modes, repetition and contrast. The the greater the contrast, the fewer the repetitions that we need. So if we can make a really salient, really immediate um, reinforcement immediately afterwards, that's going to have a really big impact. Um, when, I'm, when I'm working with new behavior technicians and we, we're talking about, you know, discrete trial instruction and data collection, I'll make the point that always recommend when a child responds correctly, you reinforce, then you record that data, right? It's that, that, and, and in that order, right? Providing that reinforcement immediately is going to be most effective. And then shortly thereafter, we're, we're collecting data on that response um, for our trials. So uh, what are some, some thoughts or considerations for that immediacy point? Uh, so kind of, kind of elaborating on what you first said. So there is what they call a reinforcement continuum where they basically say anywhere between zero and 30 seconds is where the research has said a reinforcer needs to fall after 30 seconds. There's just really no chance that there's going to be an association, but like you said, immediacy is just so important, especially with younger early learners or, or, you know, some children who just don't learn as quickly. Um, and, the, the longer a gap between the target response that we're looking for, that behavior response and reinforcement, there are lots of things that can happen within that amount of time. And the more act, the more things that occur. So let's say, for example, a client, you know, finishes their, their trial set and you are going to provide reinforcement and it takes you th three seconds to physically deliver that reinforcer. Within that three seconds, that client could have stood up twirled around, clapped their hands and sat back down. Well, now it's going to be very difficult for that child to associate that they're getting this tangible reinforcer for what they had done during those trials. Um, so going back to what you said, you know, the, the contrast, the more the client can see the contrast in the change in environment, the difference in I'm getting a reinforcer immediately now, right after this, 
the the much quicker the child will make the association um, between the reinforcer and the task. Next next way you can make reinforcement more effective: um, size or magnitude of that reinforcer. And and to me, this comes into play with a you know a tactic that we might call differential reinforcement, where we are providing a greater quality or magnitude of reinforcement to our best responses. And then for, you know, those responses that, you know, maybe, um, you know, required some more prompting or, or, or maybe weren't to the, you know, the, the, the outcome that we were looking for, but close, maybe we provide a lesser degree of that reinforcer. Right. So, you know, we're working on some really difficult, um, let's say instructional tasks and they nail it correctly, independently, first trial, man, we're throwing a party, you know, maybe, you know, what's, what's the, the favorite reinforcer, probably an, an iPad might be associated somewhere <laughs> for a lot of our kids. Right. So, you know, you're going to get a full minute on the iPad. Well, let's say a couple of responses later, they respond after some prompting and you know, not as fluent, but it was still, it was still a good attempt. Well, maybe it's, 30 seconds on the iPad. Um, and so you can really shift the magnitude or the amount of reinforcer um, to really strengthen those responses that we want to see the most. And and to you behavior technicians who haven't maybe been coached on this, um, this term differential reinforcement before, I would highly advocate for you to reach out to your BCBAs. And if you can put a structured... Uh, a structured way of having this in place, like kind of like Brian was saying, where, you know, if I get a, a spontaneous response from a, a task that's maybe never had a sp- uh, an independent response before uh, with great effort, um, you know, those should receive more time, the better reinforcer, um, the, the higher verbal praise, the party. Um, if you can have that structured criteria in place, it will only make your therapy more effective because you'll know that you're delivering the right amount every time you need to um, versus like you said, you know, maybe the client wasn't attending throughout the, the set of discrete trials. Maybe the tasks were a lot more mastered things than program targets. So they should be things that the client is, is doing readily and easily. Um, so varying that reinforcement uh, again, talking about, you know, changing motivation um, helps, helps, further motivate the client by sometimes having to do less work versus sometimes having to do more to access reinforcement. Absolutely. Well said. All right. Number nine, and this is a fun fact, and I wanted to add this really to demonstrate and illustrate some of our core values within ABA. Um, And number nine is um, behavior analysts. We have an ethical obligation to always use reinforcement-based interventions as our first behavior change tactic, right? That is our that is our first go-to strategy whenever we're designing a, a behavior and intervention plan. And, and I think it really just demonstrates um, what we view as just our guiding values of our science and within our field, that we want to create therapy environments where our clients are engaged, where learning is fun, ABA should instill a love for learning because it's such a reinforcing environment. And so I think that point can't be made enough. And I I just wanted to share, not only is it something we think is important, we are ethically obligated and professionally obligated to have these interventions as a core element of all of our behavior change strategies. So fun fact for you there. Yeah. And, and, 
just saying reinforcement is the gold standard. Um, and, and more specifically, positive reinforcement is the gold standard. Um, you know, we didn't really talk much today about negative reinforcement, which is a thing. Um, but when in doubt, whenever we can positively reinforce someone for, for behavior, that's always going to be the gold standard. Absolutely. Um, I think about just an application to this into business and leadership and um, characteristics of great leaders. And and what the research tells us is that um, leaders that um, really depend on, you know, negative reinforcement, hey, like, you know, my, my boss is yelling at me to get this thing done. People in those situations, those employees will do just enough work to avoid that aversive event, right? I'm going to do just enough so that um, I don't I don't have to hear about it the next time we meet. However, leaders that use positive reinforcement as really sort of their, their guiding, um, uh, you know, direction and, and management method. That is where we see people go above and beyond what we call in behavior analysis discretionary effort, right? So, hey, like you wanted me to get this done to you by Friday. Hey, it's Wednesday. I'm and I got this report for you completed, right? Because you're such a, you know, you, you use so much positive reinforcement and there's a ton of different strategies you can use uh, in those work settings to really um, recognize the efforts of those employees. And to your point, positive reinforcement is the gold standard in any environment, really, when it comes to influencing behavior. Yeah. And I, a lot of times, and we have all had a point in our life where we've done something just to get it done and move on. Um, and oftentimes that comes when we are engaging in things that we don't like to do, or we leave things to the last minute, you know? So, um, thinking again, kind of like you were saying about business or the professional world or the working world, um, you know, antecedent strategies or, or proactive strategies to, to help yourself with some of those things that we maybe don't find as preferred or, or, you know, it, it, the answer is just try not to procrastinate things. Um, you know, I know last uh, podcast when we talked about pairing, um, or one of the previous podcasts, we talked about having a plan for therapy. Um, that's that proactive measure. You know, when, when you're more prepared for a therapy session, you're more likely to be positive about it and just ready to go versus if you show up and you're fumbling things, and you're not sure where you're going to go with the day, your day's probably not going to be as successful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well said, well said. Um, all right. Concluding point number 10, and this is a point I want to, to end on. What is ultimately the goal in ABA with respect to our use of positive reinforcement? And, and I would say the goal is for us to develop what we would describe as a behavior trap. Okay. That's a technical term, but what does that mean? Okay. So what that means is over time, through the use of reinforcement strategies, we will help our learners develop the skills necessary for the behavior itself to become reinforcing, okay? So let me provide you with an example. Um, Working with a a young learner where we're really working hard on developing social skills and um, we're providing providing services. And one of the things in our treatment plan is that we have a token board for every time this person makes uh, initiation towards a peer to play with them. Okay, so every time this person goes up to one of their 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 peers, they receive a token at the end of the session. Those tokens could be exchanged for another preferred item or activity. What did we see happen over time? Over time, as those skills were developed, 
this individual was starting to develop friendships and it was no longer the token board that was um, reinforcing this person's behavior. It was the interactions with their peers themselves. We were also seeing over time, now their peers started to come towards towards them. And, and so they were developing friendships. What do we do? We faded out that token board. And, and now we've established what we refer to as a behavior trap, where now we have the skills necessary for that behavior to occur independent of any sort of you know outside support. Um, and what resulted in greater degree of independence, greater social interaction, and developing meaningful friendships. That's like the, one of the coolest examples and some amazing things that we get to see in, in our sessions. Yeah. And another term that gets thrown around that's similarly related is, is uh, there's two of them that are just so similar. They're called behavior cusps and pivotal behaviors. Um, and both of them, you know, have different definitions, but are, are really along the same lines. And that is that we work on skills that will do two things. One, open up the door for a client to learn more complex skills. And two, teach the client how to access reinforcement access new reinforcement contingencies. Um, so oftentimes we are working on skills that should later in life produce their own natural reinforcement. Um, so an example that I would use is when we were kids, there were things we probably didn't like to do, right? So for example, I hated vegetables and I still to a degree hate vegetables, but most kids hate eating vegetables, right? They taste disgusting. You got to load them with cheese or do something to them to make me want to eat vegetables, or at least as a kid, more, not as much now. But as a kid, you don't understand the value of, of why it's important to eat a vegetable or brush your teeth, for example, right? Um, well, so when you were a kid, your parent might have provided some incentives to get you to eat your vegetables. For example, they may have said, oh, you can have dessert if you eat your vegetables. Um, or they may have given you a reward at the end of the week if you brush your teeth every night of the week. Well, at some point in life, you learn that. So at first, although that contrived reinforcement that we kind of talked about earlier, the generalized condition reinforcers, although those things maintained the behavior initially, later in life, we learn the reinforcing value that that activity produces. And we no longer need that that tangible reinforcement to maintain that behavior. So now as adults, we eat vegetables because we know they're healthy for you and they might prolong your life. We brush our teeth because we know that if we do, it will prolong the life of our teeth and hopefully we won't lose our teeth. Um, so the goal, kind of like you said, with behavior traps, the goal is that eventually some of these things that we're teaching will occur naturally on their own because they're contacting reinforcers that we don't have to provide. Yeah. Absolutely. Thinking about, you know, teaching reading skills, right? And what an incredible cusp that is, because if we can teach a child um, to, to read, like think about the implications it have later in life in terms of, you know, academic achievements, you'd be able to enter the workforce. It really is in line with this conversation of um, the importance of um, determining and establishing effective reinforcers to drive key behaviors that are going to improve the quality of life for those that we serve. So Ian, a pleasure as always. Uh, look forward to discussing our next monthly topic. Behavior technicians, thank you for, for joining us for this episode. We'd love to hear your feedback. Things that you find to help with the delivery of reinforcement or sessions, we'd love to hear. You could send us a message at btfocus at centuryhealthcare.com. Ian, until next time. Until next time, Brian.
Hi, BT Focus listeners. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. Now, we want to hear from you. Drop us a line at our Google Voice account at 248-215-2464 if you have any thoughts, ideas, or questions. You may even hear them on the air. Or drop us a message at btfocus at centriahealthcare.com. Until next time.